you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. There are moments in the Gospels where the disciples experience Jesus as quite utterly transcending his human nature. Almost dreamlike, these experiences are all but mystical in their textures, in which the disciples see more deeply into who and what Jesus truly is. The transfiguration story is one of those, as is tonight's account of Jesus walking on the water. The lake battered by waves far from the shore The disciples in the boat see a figure coming across the water toward them. It's a ghost, they cry. But immediately they receive reassurance. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. It's interesting that in both the transfiguration story and in this one, Peter figures so very prominently. Always quick to jump and to try to do something sometimes leaping before he looks. Here, Peter eagerly steps out on the water to meet his Lord, but then he realizes what he's done. He noticed a strong wind. That's Matthew's phrase. He noticed a strong wind. No kidding. He became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Ah, Peter, why did you doubt? Why did you step out if you still harbored those doubts? In many ways, I think it's the most engaging piece in the whole story. This matter of seeing, stepping out, and then keeping going. As it was for all of them in the boat, Peter's seeing, not a ghost, but his Lord, That seeing was a kind of a gift. His stepping out, so very typical of his personality, but it's also actually typical of anyone whose faith is still very much being formed. Almost like the enthusiasm of a a new convert or a young Christian who might make big decisions, big commitments, take great risks, only to find that their roots don't go quite deeply enough to sustain them. The keep-on-going part after stepping out isn't quite possible yet, not for Peter, not at that point. It's too risky. It's too hard to trust. Still too demanding. To see, to step out, and then to keep moving, it's something that Paul works with a whole lot as he tries to shape and nurture all of those young church communities that he's planted. In some respects, that's what both of his letters to the Corinthians are all about. Through his ministry and by grace, those Corinthian Christians have seen, they have really and truly seen. And after he's left them, commissioned them to keep living a life together as church, they've stepped out, 
but apparently they've stepped out madly off in all directions. And in his letter, Paul is recognizing this. He's seeing that issue after issue after issue, division after division has surfaced in that church community. And so in his letters, his goal is to help them see again the direction in which they should be headed and to try to help them to set the kind of roots that will help keep them growing in that direction, maturity. Here in this reading tonight from the epistle to the Romans, Paul is beginning to work at something of a parallel task. We heard the beginning of chapter 9. The beginning, he's got a very particular matter he wants to work through. In fact, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are a distinct unit in this epistle. Tonight, we just heard the introductory words. Over the next two Sundays, we'll be dealing with passages drawn from that that unit, chapters 9 through 12. So for tonight, what I want to do is I want to try to show you why Paul wants to root those Christians in Rome so firmly on what was a critical issue in that day. Let me read the passage to you again. It's just five verses. He writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, the Jews, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all God-blessed forever. This is an act of lament. It's an expression of Paul's deepest sorrow. And it sets the stage for what will follow over those next chapters. This is a moment of deep seeing, from which Paul will then move and step out, wrestling with critical theological and spiritual questions. In short, this is what he wants his readers to see. First of all, Paul believes powerfully that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Promised One, for whom Israel has been longing and through whom Israel has been redeemed. He believes that powerfully. Paul is also the apostle who saw most clearly that the Messiah of Israel is also the Messiah of the whole world. That through him the ancient promise made to Abraham, 
that God would make of him a great nation, and through this all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, everything shall be redeemed. Paul sees that this has been fulfilled. And yet, while the movement was spreading through the Gentile world in the most remarkable of ways, planting in all of these cities around the the Mediterranean, the majority of the Jews who heard this message did not embrace it. And Paul formed a Jew by birth, by upbringing, by training, by fundamental theological vision. Paul, the Jew, is heartbroken. Much as he has this enormous heart for the Gentiles, he will not take a position that says to his kindred Jews, well, you rejected him, good riddance. He won't do it. As he says so clearly, it is to them that belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them comes the Messiah. But they just don't see it, most of them. They can't see it yet, or apparently have rejected it. Yet it is the promise. This is how God is redeeming the world. But if the very descendants of Abraham, if most of them don't accept it, what does it say about God's promises, God's word? This is how Paul Achtemeyer summarizes it in his commentary. He says, What is at issue is the surety of God's grace for anyone who trusts him. Because what is at issue is nothing less than the reliability of God's word and its ability to bring God's plan to fruition. You see, all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures, there is this promise that the the covenant made with Abraham would become a blessing to all nations that Israel and Jerusalem would become a light to all nations, that all nations would stream to it, that the Christ, the Messiah, would be somehow for all. This, this course is all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures, and if that's the case, and it's happened, and yet God's covenant people are not seeing it, does it mean that God somehow has dropped the ball? It's a real lament, most certainly not a dismissal of the Jews as having lost their inheritance as the chosen covenant people, not at all. Paul needs to sort out what it is that God might be doing in all of this, how God's purposes and promises are still being fulfilled in spite of what looks like rejection. As Matt Skinner put it, Paul wrote as a Jew like the prophets of old, to make theological sense of the dynamics of disobedience and restoration among Abraham's descendants. Paul laments like a prophet here, and he will go on to wrestle and critique like a prophet. But as a Jewish prophet, 
who never loses sight that Jesus was born a Jew, that in the incarnation the word became Jewish flesh and dwelt among us. Paul will go on to offer an image that pictures Gentiles, us, as being the shoots of a wild olive tree that have been grafted onto the true olive tree that is Israel, sharing now in that one strong, nourishing root. He does not for a moment say that the growing Gentile church, in fact, any church across the ages, is a new olive tree that replaces the old by no means. The new us only grows by virtue of having been grafted on to the ancient. Well, we're going to hear Paul wrestle through these matters over the next couple of weeks. But for now, just let let me leave you with something to think about. Paul, who sees and grieves and laments so deeply, how much more deeply would he grieve the long, sad, violent story of anti-Semitism that century after century after century was fueled and carried out in the name of Jesus Christ. Not only is that history a horror in its own right, but when the wild branch the wild olive branch, forgets the root from which it's actually drawing its life, isn't it also forgetting a whole part of its story and its meaning and its heritage? We'll leave it there for tonight. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.